Turn to somebody next to you and say, welcome to church. <laughs> good morning, good morning. Uh, I don't know if we've had the pleasure of meeting yet. My name's Chris. I'm one of the pastors here uh, at Kesed. And you have come at a unique time as we begin the year. We just started a new uh, teaching series this last week, probably our least creatively named series ever, called Church. Right? If you've been at Kesed, you know we do some unique names for series every once in a while. But we're really excited to enter into a conversation about what this whole thing called church is and what it means to be a part of a church. And so Pastor Danny uh, here and then myself at, at Kesed Columbia this last week kind of began the conversation. And one of the things we talked about is just this kind of idea that church is messy. Right? Now, why is it messy? Full of us. Yeah, one person said people, right? Yeah, brave enough to say that. It's because we're here, right? This, this idea that is church is filled with a bunch of individuals and gathering together as a community, that brings a little mess with it. Now, part of the mess in the church, we talked about this just a little bit, and we'll dive further into this over the next two weeks. Part of the mess in the church exists because of this collision that occurs between trendiness and tradition, right? There's this collision happening between the trends of the day, the trends of the culture, the things that we do and how we gather and how we, we use things like technology, right? And the tradition, how we've done the things we've always done, right? And over the next two weeks, we want to take a deeper dive into these two ideas in the context of this community that we call the church, we actually had someone send in, I love, they, they made up a phrase, they combined those two words together, and they said, here at Kessid, we're traditionalists, so, right? So that's the idea, and Danny talked about last week, that's kind of what the, the space that we would love to stay in, that look at culture and, and understand and, and utilize the tools that we have, but also stay anchored to our traditions. But today what we want to do is we want to talk about trendiness, and I know it just happened, Right? As I said, we want to talk about trendiness. You're like, oh, that's why Chris is here, right? Because he's super trendy, right? <laughs> Some of those laughs didn't seem very genuine there. <laughs> all right, all right, I'll remember that one. So <laughs> here's the thing I'm trendy, friends, all right? Uh, I actually turned 40 this last week, all right? And so um, <laughs> a few 40 and up year olds like clap for that. Everyone else is not excited for me turning 40. That's all right. And, and as I did, my family blessed me and, and kind of did this little party for me. And they did that thing that families do where they took a bunch of old photos and kind of blew them up and everything. And uh, a whole bunch of embarrassing ones. But in seeing the embarrassing ones, I have proof, right, that I not only am trendy now, but that began a long time ago. So I'm going to throw a couple of these pictures up here in case you need evidence, all right? There's exhibit A. <laughs> Again, some of these last things at me. What's going on here, all right? Exhibit A, this is, this is stylish, right? This is probably very early 90s right now. Uh, and so, yes, I had hair at one point. It was awesome and amazing, and then it went away. And, all right? <laughs> all right. Check out this one. Right? So I was, I don't know if anyone else has kids that, I have a 12 year old right now that is the kid that like won't wear pants, just wants to wear shorts. I just wanted to wear shorts and t-shirts all the time. But whenever, and so I had like zero button ups, right? Or, or nicer shirts. And so whenever the 
picture day happened, I don't know where my mom got these shirts from, like the free bin at a garage sale or something. But uh, yeah, so that's where this one comes from. And then I got one more. <laughs> Look at that number. All right. <laughs> I am from Battleground. What the heck? Nine o'clock service. I, that wasn't a statement to laugh at. All right. <laughs> Nine o'clock service did the same thing. All I said was, I am from Battleground, and people laughed, right? I am from Battleground, but I have never owned a cowboy hat in my entire life. And my family and I were looking at this picture, and like, this is one of those, go to like Sears or Mervyn's or somewhere and go get your photo. And so it was like, hey, I brought that awesome shirt that we had there. And then they were like, the ensemble is not complete, right? (laughs) So grab this community hat out of this bin, and wear it, and that's when it'll be official. And so um, I just want you to know, I've been rocking uh, the trendy like threads for a long time now, right? And so, and to be honest, I wanna do, I wanna have a little fun with this this week, because I, I know that I'm not the only one with a couple pictures like this, right? All right, I know. So we, traded, we created a little hashtag called uh, Kessid Trendy, that if you might have a, a picture that maybe puts you, shows that trends have changed over time, especially in fashion. We'd love for you to maybe post that on social media, just have a little fun together, because it's okay to have fun in church, right? Right? And so, uh, but, but this is the idea, like, like we want to talk about this idea of trendiness, not just in fashion, but in, in terms of this thing that we call church, because we've been a part of quite a few trends coming in to the church, right? Um, maybe we have some people in our community that remember when electric guitars started showing up, right, in the church, and that was a little mixed reaction, wasn't it, right? And all of a sudden, we're using screens and technology, and over the last few years, especially the, uh, with online church and how we can gather and from far away and, um, you know, different ways to communicate with one another. Do we communicate via email or a phone call or a text message or all the above? We have all these different trends in culture, and the church is kind of at the center of that, kind of wrestling through how do we do this? How do we stay anchored to what we do together, but also how do we live inside of this culture and see what tools are helpful for what we do? I want to make a statement, though, for our conversation today that we will carry through this entire kind of morning together, and it's this. The mission of the church is to pay attention to what God is doing in our particular context and partner with God in that, right? I want to say this again. The mission of the church is to pay attention to what God is doing in our particular context and partner with God in that. We recognize that we're not going anywhere before he has right? We prayerfully look and see where is he meeting? Where is, where is his grace and love and compassion showing up in this world? How is he meeting the needs of those in this world? And how do we partner with him in that, in that context? But here's the thing. Context changes. Now, when we think about the idea of context, I, I start thinking about the idea that we are a multi-generational community. It's beautiful. When we planted this church uh, about 13 years ago, uh, most of us, Danny and myself, we only had youth ministry experience for the most part, so we didn't think there would be anyone here like over 28, but somehow that's never been the problem here at Kessid. We have a multi-generational community, and that is a wonderful goal to have, right, in theory, but practice is a little different, right? 
See, each generation inside of the church tends to want to disrupt the previous generation's trends and traditions and create their own fresh version, right? And so when it comes to settling on what do we do together, that's a challenge, right? Because sometimes in the church, one generation just wins, right? And we stick with that for as long as we can, right? So what I want to do today, though, Let's have a conversation, a real honest conversation, and maybe even have a little more fun together about the generations that are present inside of this thing that we call church so that we can step back and and understand that though we are together and maybe in the same faith community, we have different worldviews oftentimes shaped by our different living experiences, right? So let's walk through some generations, all right? And as we go, I want you to find yourself and please get excited for your generation, all right? So (laughs) I'm going to start, though, quite a ways back with what's known as the greatest generation or the GI generation. And those in this generation were born from 1901 to 1924. And these folks were deeply impacted by the Great Depression, which molded their childhood in regards to frugality. This group was also representative of the majority of soldiers in World War II. If still with us, these folks are between the ages of 98 and 121. Now, one of the things that marks me about this generation, I can remember my grandmother, my, my dad's mom, uh, who is from this generation. I can remember when she was moved into a care facility. Uh, we moved one of her dressers in the, and we had to like look in and, and secure everything. And one of the top drawer dressers, an entire side of it was just aluminum foil balls, right? Now, some of you, as I said that, I could see it. Some of you just nodded your head because you know exactly what that's about, right? That's generationally speaking, right? My grandmother grew up in a generation and lived through the Great Depression to where she wasn't sure when she would get aluminum foil again, and we sure as heck weren't going to throw that away, right? She had tasted and felt and experienced a level of scarcity that changed her and molded her and shaped her, right? That's the greatest generation, all right? The next generation that with those as their parents was the silent generation born from 1925 to 1945. And those born between these years are actually the smallest group due to the consequences from the Great Depression and World War II. Think about that. Between the size of the population and the hesitancy to speak out against social issues due to the McCarthy era of government, they earned their name. People in this group are between the ages of 77 and 97. Then we have the next generation, the baby boom generation, right? We have any boomers here? (laughs) The boomers are so named after their parents that came home from World War II and the American population exploded. Baby boomers defied their parents, you rebels, right? Protested the Vietnam War and created the summer of love. (laughs) We'll just move on from that, all right. (laughs) <laughs> the baby boomers are actually one of the most relevant groups. Think about that, right? Anyone, anyone that's younger than a boomer, do you think of boomers as the most relevant group? But because in modern society, as they were integral and present for many of the technology advances in the last 50 years, they have been more adaptable to modern growth and learning because they've had to be how, learning how to function in today's technological age. Boomers are between the ages of 58 and 76. Then the next generation after that is the Gen Xers, right? Generation X was born. Yes, we can get excited. 
Between 1965 and 1979, Gen Xers were present for the inception of the internet, video games, artificial intelligence, and is the population that has created many of these advances. They serve almost as a bridge from older population to younger ones. This group of folks is currently between the ages of 43 and 57. Then we have the millennial or Generation Ys. Yes? Yeah. Only the 11. The, right. Thursday night was like almost ashamed are the millennials over here. Right? This is my generation right here. I am, I am uh, uh, the, one of the elder statesmen of this generation as the folks in this generation were born between 1981 and 1996. Right? Millennials lived through and were marked by 9-11. They remember when Amazon only sold books and are also the first generation to know a childhood both with and without the internet, which now plays obviously a significant role in their personal lives. Millennials are from the ages of 28 to 42. Then we have Gen Z. Nobody? No, no Gen Z. <laughs> One of you, all right, we'll be friends. All right. This group has been exposed to social media and we're the, sorry, born between 1995 and 2012. This group has been exposed to social media and we're the first population to cope with things like cyberbullying and other internet related issues in their youth. It was also during this time that school related violence and things like climate crisis have become more prevalent. This large group of people are between the ages of 10 and 27. Then did you know we have another generation now? Generation Alpha, I have a uh, little boy that's turning three this next week, he's in this generation. And these are the youngest people in the United States and are the first group to be born in the 21st century. They are the first generation to be born to parents who grew up with the internet, cell phones, tablets, and social media. And they are also inclined to be the most racially diverse and the most technologically adept. Anyone just have a young person that's just like your tech person, right? And all they had to do to be your tech person was be born, right, in this generation, right? They didn't go to any formal training or school. They just grew up in this generation, right? The oldest people in this group would be nine years old this year. All right, that's, that's most of our children's ministry that's gathering and the future leaders in our church, by the way, right? That's who makes up this church, right? That entire spectrum of people with these different lived experiences. Now, here's the thing that happens, though. On some level, each generation looks at the other and says, that's not what we do here, all right? Because of what? Because we have different life experiences, because we have different almost like factory settings that we walk into the church with because of our experiences. And this is the place that we call church. It's, it's so different, in fact, that each generation actually has different language. You ever think about that, right? Each generation brought different words to the table. Now, now as a guy who's 40 years old and officially old now, I have a 12-year-old and he comes home and he says words all the time that I don't know what they mean right? And I have to ask him, and he's like, like, so embarrassed by that. And I can remember back when I was the young person, not like embarrassed by my parents, and now it's totally flipped. So here's what I want to do. I want to take just a second. I want to teach you a couple words, all right, from Gen Z, right? Because you're going to need these, right? All right? All right, first word, cap, right? Gen Zers, 
Cap is a word that means a lie. If someone says no cap, it means something like, I'm being totally honest, I'm not lying, all right? All right, next word, T. <laughs> Refers to sharing some juicy information or gossip. So someone ends up coming and saying, hey, share your tea, right? It's don't give them a drink of your tea. It's share what's going on in your world or especially gossip, all right? Anyone ever been called sus before or heard that one, all right? It's shorthanded for suspicious. And lastly, slay. This word means to do something well or to do a good job. Somebody was like, they were like, well, I would tell my, one of the kids was telling me, well, I would tell my friend, like, you totally slayed that test in science. So, right, I want you to, like, seriously take notes on these, right? Because, and now I know what's happening right now. Some of you are looking at me like, those kids, man, coming up with new words, like, like your generation didn't do the same thing, right? You don't believe me? All right, let me show you really quick. All right, our greatest generation came up with bees knees, all right? <laughs> the silent generation, the smallest silent generation came up with the best, all right? They came up with cool, all right? It's gonna outlast all of us. Baby boomers came up with far out and groovy, all right? Gen Xers came up with boogie and dig it, all right? Millennials came up with dis and homie, right? And uh, Gen Alphas are learning how to talk right now, and uh, they'll we'll know we'll know more soon, all right? When we lay it out like that, isn't it just interesting that this is us, right? This is the community, and, and I want to kind of raise the stakes for a second. This is the community gathering of all these generations that God has called together to be messengers of his gospel. This. In John, Jesus tells us, speaking to God about us, the church, right? In a prayer, he's speaking to God and he says this. I have given them the church, the glory you gave me, so they may be one as we are one. I am in them and you are in me. May they, the church, us, all these generations, experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. He says, the unity here shown, found, worked towards matters. It matters so much as this is how the world will know that Jesus was sent and that God loves them. How important is the work that we do in achieving unity here, right? How important is it for us to address what we carry into the room, whether we like it or even realize it or not, that we all have preferences as to how this whole thing should happen, right? From our generation, from our lived experiences, and we carry them into the room. Our job is to bring wisdom to this collision between trendiness and tradition. So here's what I want to do. I want to dive into a story from uh, Luke chapter 2 of Jesus. Now, we don't have a lot of stories of Jesus growing up. Most of the stories we have in the New Testament are about him as an adult. But we do have one story where he's a 12-year-old. And I want to dive into that story. In Luke chapter 2, we're going to begin in verse 41. It says this. Now, his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. So if you do something every year, it's called a tradition, right? Right? 
And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. So something's different about culture, because apparently there you can lose your kid for an entire day, right? And they lost God. (laughs) It says, and when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Can we just stop and just realize, like, I listen, I did a lot of youth ministry, but the fact that a 12-year-old is listening and asking questions, right, just a glory to God for that, right? And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. I love like the Bible words because I want you to just think about for any parents in the room, right? If you would tell your kids, I've been searching for you in great distress, or if you would use different words to describe how you felt about that. And he responded, and he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. It shows this kind of growth trajectory in all these different areas. Jesus grew in his understanding, his his experience. He grew in stature. He grew in favor, his relationship with God and and with others. Now, what I want to do today is I want to kind of pretend for a second that we don't have the the rest of the New Testament. I want to project forward. If you were going to guess how the story would go, right? See, everything we were told up until this point revealed Jesus as a faithful Jewish boy. He lives in a Jewish context and culture. And it's a culture steeped in tradition, and the expectation was that this good Jewish boy would continue those traditions and uphold them. But that's not what he did, did he? See, as he taught, he did so untethered to a commitment to keeping the status quo. See, he was tethered to something else other than tradition. I like to say Jesus taught with a slant, right? Jesus shocked his biblically and theologically well-versed brethren by when he taught, summarizing the law and its traditions in two commandments. He said this, love the Lord your God with with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. He then stated, there is no commandment greater than these. And in one breath, he placed love above tradition and the entire sacrificial system and brought all the commandments of God into alignment under the majesty of love. Do you remember when Jesus taught for the first time, what did they do? They tried to kill him. What happened? The 12-year-old, right, everyone, the religious leaders in the room, they loved what he said. But as Jesus grew, he was unwilling to just uh, continue the status quo and the traditions, right? He said, I'm anchored to something deeper, and I will bring that truth into everywhere that I go, no matter how uncomfortable it makes you. See, Jesus was a disruptor because love is disruptive, right? 
I want you to think about that statement. The moments that you have felt most loved, most seen, most heard, most valued, most cherished, right? Were they on the agenda, right? Were they on the agenda at the beginning of the day? Or did someone somewhere kind of push through the agenda and move into some level of sacred space, right? And name what was already there, your, your beauty and, and how you were created in the image of God and, and how you were important and loved and cherished and valuable, right? Those moments when we feel deepest loved are generally ones where our plans were disrupted, Right? It requires another level of naming or experiencing together. That's why we can't just say, I love you one time. It requires a fresh experience, right? See, Jesus was a disruptor because love is disruptive. And we saw a, a communal or societal example of this recently. If we have any football fans here, just a couple Mondays ago, we saw a tragedy happen on the football field, right? A football player named DeMar Hamlin on the Buffalo Bills. Like what happens how many times every single game there was a collision between players and he collided, went down, got up, and then went down again. And somehow this one was different. Now there's collisions like this all the time and people get injured all the time and they've gotten really good at just kind of panning away the camera and continuing the conversation and, and, and we move on from that and the game continues. But something was different here from the reaction of the players, especially to the reaction of the medical team that was working on him. All of a sudden in the midst of this football game, they were doing CPR to try to resuscitate him and bring him back to life. It was a scary moment. It was terrifying. It affected everyone there, right? Now, let's talk about this for a second, can we? It's Sunday. It's playoffs, right? Seahawks lost yesterday. Uh, can we, are we willing to name that those sports are beautiful? They're uh, potentially quite a big idol in our culture, right? That many times we allow it to shape our our world, right? We move for it. it, it and to me, football doesn't move for us. We move for it. We change our schedules and our lives to watch it and be a part of it, right? Um, and I'm, again, I'm not saying it's bad. I just think we need to know that. We need to be willing to talk about that. But something happened. His life was in danger. And then normally what you do is you would move the person that's injured and you would continue on the game. But the players got together. They had a conversation and they said, we're not... We, we will not finish this game. And only that, they decided to not replay the game. Now again, football fans, you know that this is crazy talk, right? We finish no matter what. Something sacred happened on that field, and we have to notice it. See, love disrupted the plants, right? All the money that was paid for tickets and concessions and everyone, right? All that went to the wayside because this one life mattered. Right? See, love disrupts. And the moment we forget that, we, we cease to be a person who will um, be receptive to the deepest forms of love. Love disrupts. When we think about this disruptive force that we call the church, Jesus gave very few instructions for how to build the church other than the command to love. See, love is described in 1 Corinthians 13. It's illustrated in stories like the Good Samaritan. It is commanded in Luke 6, but it is never defined. Don't you find that interesting? Right? Why is that? We have the ingredients of love, or at least some of them. But could it be that love requires 
relationship. See, love requires new creation all the time, so we can't define it. It requires you and me and each other to meet each other, to see each other, to find each other, and bring a fresh expression together. That's why it can't be defined, but you know it when you feel it, right? You know it when you are loved. You know when your intentions are to love. It's disruptive. This last week as I was studying this idea of church, I was, I was listening to a theologian talk about the church and he was asked kind of just kind of this broad question. What is the church, right? And his answer one that has, is one that just stuck with me. He said really confidently and boldly, he was asked, what is the church? And he was like, oh, the church? Yeah, the, the church? Oh, that's love school, right? That's what the church should be. So the church, for, of all the things it can be, this church should be love school. The church should be the very place where you learn how to love, how to love God, how to love your neighbor, and how to love yourself. It's about bringing people back to love. It's about helping people see how easily love can get screwed up. It's about helping people see that when love is present, that everything is changed. And I couldn't stop thinking about this idea. This, if you think, it's like a dream of the church, right? What would it look like? So the church, in essence, is love school, right? So I actually asked some, some friends about this. I asked this question. If there were a real-life love school that taught you how to love well and gave you what you needed to give and receive authentic love, what real classes and subjects would be taught, right? I want you to think about that for a second, right? So I wanna put a picture up. Now, I know everyone's, a lot of people's school experiences were different, but a lot of us have walked down a hallway kind of like this at some point, right? right? You've gone from class to class, and those, like, I have a 12-year-old right now, and he tells me all the time, like, when am I gonna use this stuff, Dad, right? And to be honest, I have to be like, well, some of it never, right? But <laughs> others, you know, the act of going to school is really important, and, and doing what you say you'll do, and having commitment, and, but, I want you to think about the idea of if there was an actual love school and there were courses there that, designed, that were designed to equip you, right, to give you an experience and send you out to both love yourself, love others, and love God better, what would the curriculum be, right? So I asked this question, and these are some of the answers that came back. Somebody said at love school, there would be an entire class on communication. Anyone agree, right? That would have been helpful, preparing me for this life. Intention. Someone said dancing in the rain 101. Someone said alone time, right? How to be by yourself. Someone said how to identify and heal your own trauma. How to play and laugh together. Biblical interpretation. Boundaries selflessness, acts of service. Some said we would need an entire class on heartbreak. What do I do when my heart breaks? How long would the course be on grief? How long would it need to be to prepare you? They said we need an entire class on listening. Could anyone, am I the only one that could use that one? Excitement. Worship, 
self-care. Someone actually didn't want to post on this, and they text me uh, that they needed an entire class called Coffee is Not a Meal. (laughs) I thought that was funny, but then also, isn't there a ton of truth to that? Like this idea that my my body is a temple and I'm to care for it, and sometimes I might need to go back and unlearn some of the habits that I have to care for it well. Because, friends, again, you're don't get me going on the wrong tangent here, but as a pastor and therapist, we're learning so much about how our gut health is, is, is largely uh, connected to our emotional regulation, right? We could use a couple classes on that. Understanding family history and patterns. Does anyone else need a class on saying no to yourself? How about being fully present? how to have conflict, right? I work with couples often and, and premarital, and I ask the question when it comes to, whenever you're entering into conflict, you have to ask this question, am I trying to win a fight or am I trying to find the other person? If I'm trying to win the fight, I should just stop. Self-awareness, emotional regulation, consistency. Some of us might need a class because maybe the family we grew up in or the experiences that we had in life, we didn't see people of, of the deepest level of character and integrity. Their yes wasn't yes and their no wasn't no and say so they moved back and forth. Because So that's what we were thrust into adulthood with. I might need a course or I might need to sit with someone who's really good with that and learn how to do that because I never learned that. Some of us might need to learn how to rest. You know, rest is really important because you know what it does? It empties your cup, right? It empties your cup. And you know why emptying your cup is so important, right? Because that's the only way we bring uh, room and margin enough for fresh revelation from God. Friends, if you never rest, on some level you're saying to God, I'm good. I'm good. I don't need anything fresh. And when I mean fresh, I'm, I, rest, I'm not just saying physically rest. That's really good. But soul rest, right? Unplug. Unwind, care for yourself, right? How many more classes could we name, right? Which one would you need? Which one do you need right now? And here's another question. Which one could and should you teach? See, that's the shift I want us to see here today, is that when I talk about the church being love school, it's not this. Right? It is a community of people. It's not just one person teaching that. It's each one of us gives and receives. See, the church is to be like a potluck. Everyone gives and receives. Everyone gives and receives. Right? All of us. Now, we don't measure how much we give and receive at each point in time because we're in different stages of life and different experiences of life. But everyone gives and receives. And everyone both needs to go to class and could teach a class. Everyone. You ever think about that? Why does Jesus direct us to look at children? Don't children have a ton to teach us, right? They're teaching us. My two-year-old is teaching me the lesson of presence all the time. All the time, right? You know how often, as much as I want to be the most present dad ever, there's this little thing in me that's like, I don't want to, or that's not what I want to do, so I'm going to make you do what I want to do, as opposed to just giving of myself fully and meeting him where he's at. See, these are the lessons we need to learn together. There is a sacredness to this love school, right? 
I've shared this story a while back, but I want to share it um, again here because it's one of the ones that's kind of marked and shaped me. When I was a junior in high school at Battleground High School, thank you very much, I got into this class I was really excited about. I heard from some friends, and this is kind of abnormal me, but I heard from some friends that this teacher was awesome. His name was Mr. Mortlock, right? And I actually had someone at the nine o'clock service come up and talk to me, had him too. If you did, you, you should come say hi. But uh, I'll never forget the very first day of class. I got in there. I'm in the class. Everyone's kind of chatting, and, and the bell rings, and the teacher's not there, which is pretty abnormal. And, and, and then the door opens, and this guy walks in, and he's wearing sweatpants. He looks like the PE teacher, right? Except for not physically like the PE teacher, right? He's wearing sweatpants and just like an oversized T-shirt, and he's holding a bunch of pieces of paper. And he walks to the front of the room, and he, he introduces himself as Mr. Mortlock, and he tells everybody what the class is. And he said, here's the thing about this. I believe what we do here is important, right? And so I'm going to start a little differently than you normally start in class. And he said, so we're going to take a test, right? Again, mind you, we're four minutes into the class, right? There's nothing. We're all looking around like, what? we can't take a test, right? And he said, we're going to take a test and I'm actually going to grade it, right? And here's the thing. I'm going to give you this test, and I, but I'm going to walk out into the hallway. This is a test where you need to just do it yourself. And if anyone cheats on this test, and he grabs out another piece of paper, he said, this is my resignation. He said, I will walk this down to the principal's office right now. And then he told us about his family, and then he hoped that wouldn't happen. I have never forgotten that experience where he just walked and he left. Told us to take the test, and we started taking the test. I was like in the third row, and somebody in the first row just turned around, right? And the entire class shouted at him to stop, right? And there was this I had been even this week trying to name what happened, but all I can name is that he named the sacredness of the experience. What we do here matters. Now that was junior year, right? Junior year in a class called management communications. And I have never tried so hard in a class in my entire life, right? That entire time. He challenged us, Right? And what he, he said is that work that we do here is, is, um, is important, and the only way to build off of that is trust. And so he laid that foundation from the very beginning. He named the sacredness in the room. And if that sacredness is in the room in my junior of high school, how much more is in, in, present in the life of the bride of Christ? Every moment is sacred. All of them. And when we think about this thing called love school, it isn't just the church that is supposed to put together programs and services, even though this is a great place for that to happen, but it is the recognition, recognition that you, everywhere you go, is to be love school. Everywhere you go. You're both to be learning, all right, a student in class and teaching. Everywhere you go. There is such a wealth of information and knowledge and experience in this community. But if we don't do the work to find each other, if we don't do the very hard, uncomfortable work of, of moving past generations and worldviews and perspectives and the things that we want and truly find each other, we will not achieve the unity that Christ talked about and so miss our calling. Now, here's the thing. Here's the blessing is God won't miss his calling, but we'll miss participating in it. 
This unity is worth finding, worth searching out, worth sacrificing for. So a couple of things I want to talk about before we end here today, just to clarify. As we move forward and wrestle through this whole trendiness and tradition idea, it's this. The message is sacred, but the method is not. Methods will change over time. They will continue to change over time. We will hold on to the ones that are sacred, and that's beautiful. We will wrestle through that together. But we have to recognize, and this beautiful quote we found this week says this, the church that is married to the spirit of this age becomes a widow in the next. So as we entertain the idea of of trends that are here, we don't marry ourselves to them, friends. We wrestle through them. I said earlier, church can be fun, can it not? But if the church marries itself to fun and entertainment, then it gives into a consumeristic mentality and loses the servant-hearted and sacrificial love approach that should be its foundation. How much are you expecting to be entertained when you come to church or participate in church? See, utilizing technology to connect and share the gospel is an absolute gift. But human-to-human relationships are where love is cultivated and grown. So if the technology of the church, and I'm, I'm speaking both to us here, right, the technology that we have, even our online community right now, if the technology of the church makes it easier for you to not know others and be known, you might want to look at that. We wrestle with this. It has become trendy to criticize the church, and she needs to be criticized, and she needs to be held accountable. But the Bride of Christ is a sacred community of messy people led by the Spirit of God, and because of that, I pray over us, I pray, this is my own heart, that we hold on to a hopefulness that she can and will be made new. I don't want to minimize any experiences, any pain for anyone that's, that's been hurt in the church and around the church by the community of the church. I will never do that. I've experienced some of my own. But I pray that we, we never let go of a hopefulness because the Spirit of God makes all things new. And even though pain may have existed, healing can come. And new life can come through that. The mission of the church is to pay attention to what God is doing in your particular context and partner with God in that. And because of that, this isn't love school, your love school. Can I say one thing before we close, right? As the 40-year-old in the room that's kind of in between generations, can I say one thing that I've noticed? My generation and those uh, above me, for the most part, were a part of structures and, um, and authority figures that kind of built the structures. And so a lot of times community was found inside of the structure, inside of the structure of the church. You went to the Bible study because you were told to, you went to the service because you were told to, and this is how we did things. And we found each other in the structure, right? But something's happened over a few generations where the generations that are coming up now, our younger generations, have seen how sometimes those structure, when they lose the value, especially the church, when they lose the values of Christ, those structures tend to topple over and crush people. So our newer generations aren't as much just rushing into the structures of the church before they build a relationship. They're saying, I want to build relationship first. So one challenge. As we think about inviting others to church right now, and this can be true of any generation, but specifically our younger generations right now. When we think about inviting 
our friends to church, would you think about inviting them to dinner before you ever invited them here? Could it be that that's church too? If you are the love school sent by God, right? Could it be? We can clap for that. That's fine. No pressure, but I met a brother after the nine o'clock service who someone turned around and then invited them to dinner the next day. So you guys can wrestle with that, whether you need to do that. But this is what it means to stay open and new and fresh is realize that, see, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, right? But he's making all things new, right? And this is the shift. God is the same. We are not to be. You were to adopt and absorb the newness and see what it does, how it disrupts you. I pray it disrupts this whole church. One dear friend asked me this question about this school of love. He said, classes last a lifetime, right? And I said, absolutely. I pray that that's our legacy no matter the generation. We never stop showing up, both sitting in as a student and teaching the classes we are to teach. There are people in this church right now that are so afraid to step forward and share their experience because it's messy, right? I pray for courage. I pray for bravery. I pray that you realize that sometimes when we're in the deepest pain, we need the story of someone else overcoming so we can even attend to the idea that we could overcome ourselves. I pray that we bring those stories together. This church is a sacred community of messy people. And God is not done with it yet. So here's what I want to do. I just want to pray for us to close. So I'm going to just ask that you stand for a closing prayer. And I just want to pray over us. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that you instill in us the idea that the church is to be a beloved community, a place of healing, where we are to acknowledge the suffering of each other and walk alongside each other in suffering, all the while pointing to love. I pray that it's a place that we embrace a willingness and a freedom to enter uncomfortabilities that lead to greater care for love and one another. I pray for your spirit to come and do what you've always done, Lord, is disrupt. I pray that our agendas are set down. I pray that there is a conviction right now where we need to break bread for, with people that we know or maybe we don't know yet. I pray for that there is a trust that if you are a part of the local church, you are to be seeking to be known and to know others, Lord. Let that be our collective goal here today. Mess this whole thing up, Lord. Disrupt it as you wish. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, amen. amen. God bless you guys. We'll see you next week.